we all, uh, when we join an organization, want to belong to something that feels meaningful. So allowing people to have more of a vested voice and interest in how these investments, in this case, in physical spaces, affect them and the planet, it's smart business. You're listening to episode 37 of the Happy Space podcast. And today I speak with Miller Knowles Global Research Lead, Ryan Anderson, about opportunities for organizations to create more inclusive workspaces that support sustainable performance. Welcome to the Happy Space podcast, where productivity meets inclusivity and everyone gets things done. Hello, I'm Claire Kumar, highly sensitive executive coach, speaker, and your host. Studies show that diversity leads to better business outcomes. So doesn't it make sense to invite everyone's richest contribution? Yet too many people are invited to burn out or opt out, and we are squandering talent. On this show, we'll explore a two-part solution. Part one, cultivating sustainable performance, the individual design of work and life to preserve our energy so we can keep contributing. And two, designing inclusive performance, the design of spaces, cultures, products, and services which invite the richest participation. I hope you enjoy these conversations and find inspiration and encouragement for everyone deserves a happy space. Hello and welcome. I'm excited to have you join for this conversation with Ryan Anderson. He's the Vice President of Global Research and Insights at Miller Knoll. You'll recognize Miller Knoll for many of their iconic furniture pieces, the Herman Miller line and and many, many more in their in their family of uh, companies. What I love is Ryan's going to share in our conversation his absolute love of inclusive design. You'll hear how that if you have an, a possibility of designing inclusively from the beginning, not only can it make your design less expensive, it can make it more beautiful. So for this and other insights, please enjoy this episode. You'll enjoy Ryan. Definitely find out where he is on all the socials. Check out the show notes for those and enjoy this conversation again with Ryan Anderson of Miller Knoll. Ryan, welcome to the Happy Space Podcast. I am thrilled to be in conversation with you. I've been following your work and certainly Miller Knoll for a long time. And I want to kick off by just asking you to give us a little bit of an idea of what brings you to the work that you're doing. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you too. Uh, what brings me to the work that I'm doing is that the physical spaces that we spend so much of our time in matter. They affect our lives in ways that people don't expect. And by understanding that relationship between the built environment and our lives, we can make it better. So a lot of that is around the workplace. But our our work at Miller Knoll, because we're a, a family of companies that creates designful products for offices, home, healthcare environments. We like to study a lot of these environments and they can teach each other a few things, so to speak. Um, and it's I find it to be really interesting work. I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. Did you train as a designer and then become part of Miller Knoll or what's your background? No, I actually studied marketing. Um, I was very interested just in kind of understanding customer needs. And uh, I've been in this industry, the the furniture industry for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And 
I really started with a focus just on office space. And I remember when Wi-Fi started to get really common, seeing people working in whole new ways and realizing that these spaces that were designed with rows of desks for people to sit at computers all day long, by the way, a lot of them still look that way, that they weren't going to be relevant anymore. So it drew me more to the research and development side. And um, I did have some market research background, but I had to learn uh, about ethnographic research, quantitative research. And I'm really thankful to now be building on a really long tradition because some of our our companies and our and our family of brands like Herman Miller have research going back to the 60s and even before. Yeah, there's a there's a legacy of incredible design and research to your point. So uh, when you look at the opportunity now, you talk about inclusive design being the big opportunity. Can you help our listeners understand what you mean by that and then talk to about Talk to us about the opportunity. Sure. And I'll preface it by saying it is the topic that I am most passionate about. And so I'm going to edit. I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, be as long winded as I could be. But basically, inclusive design is a more participative approach to design where you include uh, a more diverse group of people in the process. And so there's a concept within the world of design called universal design, which I think is super aspirational. It's this idea that we can create some sort of design, a product design, a place, whatever, that works for everyone, but it doesn't always tell you how to go about it. So inclusive design for me is a little bit more about the how. And when it comes specifically to workplace, the roots of office design, I'm going back to like the 1800s, it was all about supervising work, expressing status. It was about what the bosses, because back in that era, you'd call them the bosses, not the workers wanted. And um, over time, that shifted a little bit. But one of my team members, Joseph White, who's our director of design strategy, often says the future will be designing with, not just for. So it's about including the people who use a design in the process and the more diverse you are in terms of thinking about who you talk to, the more you uncover unique needs that aren't often just unique to that person. You might find that someone that has a unique need actually helps you design something that's better for everyone. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked mostly as a productivity coach over the past 15 years mm -hmm. and working with people who are neuro neurodivergent, ADHD, executive function challenge, all of the strategies that really help someone with ADHD perform better generally help most people. So yeah, I get your point and, and, and it's super valid. It's it's interesting. There's a, some a challenge that I run into or I expect to experience potentially. There's some swimming pools here in Toronto where they've made gender inclusive bathrooms and shower rooms, but they haven't really put like a, a, a room, you know, a shower stall with a lock. They've just sort of set a curtain Oh. Uh, yeah. And I'm thinking, mm, uh, mm. at the best of time, curtains don't stay in place in showers. So yes. I'm thinking, okay, I get your nod to inclusivity here, but I'm not feeling safe as a user. So I'm going to what? Not take my bathing suit off now? Like, what am I, like, I'm, therefore I'm not going to be clean because the chlorine is, you know, we need to get rid of it. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking you're to your point of it being aspirational, Definitely. I'm seeing the same thing with bike lanes. Um, we're asking a lot of our old city streets with pedestrians, scooters, bikes, cars. And then we think of people with disabilities driving a car. They can't park and get out without 
absolutely fearing for their lives because we don't have a very patient culture. So mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. all of that to say is when I look at it, I think we need greater intention and understanding, you know, who we're designing for, but there's a patience that's required in the design process. And then there may be a patience in the use process too, because things shift and they're different than what we've expected there to be. Um, what do you true. think about that? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. The examples you used are what we would consider to be belonging cues, spatial belonging cues. So you should, you know, we should all be very empathetic and, and attuned to how the design of a space can communicate to someone that it's either for them or not for them. Mm -hmm. And something like, I'm not sure I feel safe changing here tells you that it was designed with some assumptions about what somebody might like that probably was not representative of, of all. Um, when it comes to offices, I'm going to get really specific with offices. Yeah. There's this tremendous catalyst right now because more flexible work policies has generally reduced occupancy levels. By the way, one of the the things you'll find if you try to be more inclusive, not just of people with motor, uh, unique motor needs, uh, but of anyone is that a little bit more generous use of space is usually a good thing. Uh, nobody wants to be in a tight, confined space. So there's extra space to be more inclusive right now. But the big thing is that organizations are saying, what's the future of our office space, of our workspace? Well, now is a pretty good time to realize that if the space isn't working for the employees, then it's not working. Like there is no return on that investment. We can't um, continue with a design process, which was somewhat common in the past of asking a departmental leader, what do your people need? Well, how's that person supposed to know? Uh, the more we can get in and talk, and yes, it does take a little bit more time, but interestingly, the results are often not much more expensive and often a whole lot more beautiful. Because if you look at spaces that are designed kind of the middle of the bell curve, and then you try to accommodate other people with unique needs, that's when you get into retrofitting with bars or other sort of things that people don't love. Uh, but if you do it right from the first time, it's usually more usable for everybody and a whole lot more beautiful. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I was uh, in conversation over Facebook this morning with somebody who wants to have their mother-in-law up to their cottage at Christmas and it's a new build. And they said, she's in a wheelchair and we, we can't get her in. And I'm thinking, how is it, not to take away from the office discussion, but um, we can't, how is it that we don't have design thinking as inclusively as we could be now in, in the cases so that you could design the ramp as a, this is standard what we do. We put a ramp and we put railings and we put stairs. Like, you know, we haven't got there yeah. in, in terms of that universal design aspirational goal yet. It's just not near as ubiquitous as it should be. So you you might know I have the privilege of hosting Miller Knowles podcast, which we just recently changed the name to About Place. And I hosted Senator Tom Harkin, who sponsored the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, this year. And he was talking a little bit about how it was an amazing thing to be able to see that legislation pass, but it didn't apply to homes and it still doesn't, believe it or not. And uh, we had the chance to collaborate on a building for his institute, the Harkin Institute of Public Policy, where we had the chance to do some of this. So like as an example, it is multi-floor, but there's a very uh, spacious ramp that allows people to get from the different floors without stairs, but it also allows people that are either in wheelchairs or somebody that may not uh, be able to hear very well to walk side by side with someone, mm -hmm. to be able to make eye contact, to see their lips if, if they need to. 
And guess what? It's just a beautiful ramp. Like it's the sort of space kind of like at, um, you know, Guggenheim or elsewhere where you'd see a really sculptural sort of element in the space as opposed to the sort of retrofit that, you know, a lot of organizations find that they have to do later if they don't take something on the side. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this opportunity to get it right from the beginning. So new builds are particularly exciting then because you can actually get really creative and and design it in. Today's episode of the Happy Space podcast is sponsored by ClaireKumar.com. With sensitivity, curiosity, and courage, I serve three groups asking the tough questions that lead to meaningful answers. Number one, I coach ambitious leaders to design for well-being and achieve next-level work-life integration. Number two, I mic drop thought bombs that's BALMS as in B-A-L-M-S, in keynotes and workshops, helping organizations achieve the business imperative that is inclusivity. And three, I collaborate with brands concerned with respect for well-being on product design, marketing, and PR. If any of this piqued your interest, come find me at clairekumar.com. I'd love to speak with you. Designing inclusive performance together will lead to the richest results. Although what's interesting is that in the world of, of uh, particularly commercial real estate, there's also a major emphasis on adaptive reuse because the the environmental impacts of tearing buildings down, building new buildings is so significant that we're at a really interesting kind of crossroads for the design of spaces where the questions are being asked, how do you use existing structures? How do you take an older building that might not be as appealing, but create an interior that people love? And how can you be more inclusive in it? So for the enterprising, you know, ambitious architect or interior designer, it's really a fascinating, but very challenging time. Yeah. And materials are changing, but that consciousness, I, I interviewed Lisa Whited recently and she's yeah, a beautiful, beautiful book on work better save the planet. And there's, there's definitely a consciousness. I know my daughter's a big thrifter, so there's, it's infused the way we're thinking about things. And so I, I think there must be a conversation for employees looking at a company too, to see where the responsibility is. Do you think that's, that's definitely part of the conversation? I think so. I think so. And let, let's face it, we all, uh, when we join an organization, want to belong to something that feels mm -hmm. meaningful. Yes, we get paid to, you know, give a certain amount of our productivity to an organization, but we want to be part of something and it's, it's worthwhile for the organization to want to keep us. So allowing people to have more of a vested voice and interest in how these investments, in this case, in physical spaces affect them and the planet it's smart business. Like at the, at the end of the day, it's smart business. The other the other thing that I often remind our customers, I was just with a large real estate firm today, is that inclusive design is good business. I mean, it's a tight labor market. It's not like there's some huge influx of labor coming from anywhere. We need uh, both unskilled and skilled talent in a variety of roles. And when you create a space that enables a broader population to be productive, that translates into better hiring, better retention, better productivity. It's the smart choice. Yeah. Why do you think some leaders are not getting that? Well, if I'm really specific to workplace design, we have to be cognizant of just how common it is that the design of a space is meant to express some status or image for the organization. It's more about 
promoting a certain brand ideal or whatever the leader of the organization is thinking about. Most people aren't used to saying, I make an investment in real estate. It's probably the second highest spend after I have, you know, with, with people. So yeah. what does it look like to see better productivity, better engagement, better um, connection of social networks, but it's all possible. And this is the research we do. You know, we, we have a lot of social scientists that we work with that help to peel back what are these spaces actually doing to affect us as individuals and as a community? And if we can trace that back to some business outcomes, then I think a lot of organizations see it, but it's just not something historically that's been done. Yeah. It reminds me of the business case for good ergonomics, which before didn't exist when I was lobbying for it in 1995. And all of a sudden, now that people understand the arguments, then there's a little more appetite for standing desks and that's oh, it. yeah. I mean, Herman Miller created the first ergonomic chair, Ergon, in 1976. And the designer, Bill Stumpf, who was really a legend uh, throughout Herman Miller, um, I think understood an enlightened view of ergonomics before the, the practice of it really got going. For a lot of people that have an ergonomics background, it was more of a study of efficiency, like how quickly you could produce something on a yes. factory line. And if somebody was experiencing pain, it hurt their productivity. <laughs> but yeah. if we if we broaden that to comfort and we think about it not just as physical, but social and psychological, you're you're just basically taking away barriers for somebody to have a really good experience. There's this philosopher that that Bill Stumpf used to quote uh, named William Gass, who said, uh, comfort is the absence of awareness. So if you've got like that tag that's bugging you, like, oh, you experience discomfort as soon as you're aware of something or you're on a plane and suddenly it's too warm. So if we believe that people want to be productive and achieve things, mm. We just have to like take away those things that are in their way. And that's where ergonomics, a more holistic view of ergonomics can be very powerful. I agree with you. And uh, the HSP that you can see uh, on the Zoom screen there stands for highly sensitive person. And I'm not sure if you did have a chance to look at the quiz there or if you know about this temperament. Do you, do you know about that at all? Tell I, me more. Sure. So it's considered part, and at least my opinion, part of being neurodivergent, so a neuroatypical way of being. And it applies to at least one in 20 people. Hmm. So, and anybody that's considered neurodivergent, which started with autism, ADHD, OCD, all, a lot of different um, conditions that are diagnosable. High sensitivity as a temperament is not considered diagnosable because it's considered a normal though atypical way of being. So we are clearly in some kind of limbo land. There is no doctor's note, therefore there's no accommodation, but there's a whole pile of things that make us uncomfortable. Mm, that's I'm fascinating. I, I'm immediately wishing that two of my team members, <laughs> I, I often say that uh, when I don't know the answer to your question, I've got the team members to jump into it. We've got two team members that are super deep, particularly into sensory and neurodivergence. And I'm learning stuff from them and you all the time. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I think it's it's really interesting because we're often not even thought of as a category of people and it's so big. By the way, we you know, we study um homes and as well as home workspaces. And there is definitely a subcategory of like really amped up prosumer media type spaces like what you're talking about that's becoming so common. You're seeing pro audiovisual gear being used by a lot of people just in their home workspaces, which is really fascinating. 
it's fascinating and thank goodness because it should make a better experience. I said to, I was giving a productivity workshop last week and I said, you're all broadcasters now. So <laughs> exactly, it's, exactly. it's up to you to provide a good experience for your listener and your viewer. And so no backlit windows behind you, no ceiling fans running. No, like there's, you really want to curate your experience. So big revenue opportunity, I think for the tech companies that they probably didn't see coming <laughs> to that degree. The game well, for sure, but- well, what's funny is we we did when I was leading research uh, tech research specifically at Herm Miller, we did an eighteen month uh, collaboration with the head of user experience at Microsoft who led the Skype and then the Teams team specifically on video, yeah. and it was really interesting because we realized that those of us that came to the from the physical environment world sometimes forgot about the richness of interaction digitally at the time. Of course, it's more part of our life 10 <laughs> years later, now. <laughs> but that those developing technology were not really thinking about the physical environment that much either. So we created a list of, of uh, good principles that we started applying to video rooms, home workspaces, et cetera, that I was really glad we had come 2020. <laughs> yeah. Did it say put big pink cushions in the corner of your room to try and match your wall? <laughs> we'll add it as an appendix. Definitely <laughs> it should be in there somewhere. Yes. Somebody I talked to said, you know, the sound can bounce in the corners. And if you stop that spot, then then I have a I have a big orange blanket on my desk and a carpet. And otherwise, this would be a glass sound bouncing tin can. It would be terrible. So I'm going to get so research geeky on you. You increased your NRC, which is your noise reduction coefficient. Sound is just like water. It'll bounce around and there needs to be something to capture it. And you're right. Pillows, carpeting, in an office, acoustical ceiling tiles, sometimes furniture, um, not, but there's other sometimes, things. What do you think the cat does? Cat. <laughs> That's a high NRC cat right there. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because I think of designers and I think of facilities people and commercial real estate, and I think of the potential attitude to say, no, we just got to keep putting a lot of furniture in. We want to we want to design the spaces the way we were. But I'm hearing such a refreshing perspective from you. Um, what's my question here? I think it's. I think I, I'm, there's clearly tension in the um, the people's trying to sell real estate. There's tension from a we want the property tax for the use for the businesses to be downtown, so we're getting that tax base, and it's also going to pull the people back. We have the controlling leadership that's mandating people back to work, not recognizing that it's not working. Um, yet you've got a refreshing perspective that says you have to pay attention to the fact it's not working and we need to sort of meet people where they are and design from there. Yeah, well, part of it is we've worked with organizations for a really long time that have highly distributed teams that could work from anywhere. And if done right, people love their workspaces, they might not want to be forced to be there all week long. But like for me, I've got like the ultimate, I've got a great home workspace and I've got an amazing office space that's yeah. gorgeous and inclusive and I can work outdoors and I can I can do all sorts of other things there. And then when you have choice, yes. I, I, I don't think it becomes that binary home or office. It becomes what have I got to do today? Who am I going to do it with? What are those critical activities? People start thinking more critically around how is this space going to impact my ability to do this? 
the headlines about fighting over space have been quite counterproductive. Uh, from our research, we find that the vast majority of people want more choices, not fewer. So like, yes, I'd like to work from home sometimes. Yes, I'd like to work from an office sometimes. They can be designed in a more complementary approach. You know, it doesn't make sense typically to have an office be a sea of desks at this point. It's not really what people are going there to do. They're going there for either very immersive, relational, team-based sort of work, or they're going for deep, concentrative work that they might not be able to achieve at home. Um, it's like it's a, a either end of a bell curve. And these very generic, well, there's a desk, just do all your work there approaches don't work at all anymore. Mm -hmm. So most of the folks that I talk to in the world of commercial real estate, even if they're an owner's rep whose job is to lease people a lot of space, what they're searching for is that next clear value proposition. What are these spaces doing that people say, yes, that is valuable for us? Mm -hmm. And I actually think we've known it for a long time. We want physical workspaces, offices to connect us in ways that are difficult to achieve technologically. They should promote well-being, not detract from it. They should accommodate change over time. Inclusive design stitches many of these things together, but you know it should be for the needs of people um, who probably don't want to spend their entire lives in their spare bedroom. Some people perfectly fine with that or based on geography. Uh, want to work that way or need to work that way. But like I said, most people, if you give them choice and then give them good choices, prefer more options, not fewer. Mm. So two questions are coming to mind. Um, the first one is when I look at space design as a productivity coach, I look at, yes, focused work and collaborative time. I also look at an increasing need to embed rest opportunities in the workspace. Can you yep. tell me your philosophy and how you're seeing that? Because I am someone who crawled under their desk and slept on the floor in my third trimester of pregnancy. Oh, wow. There was nowhere oh, to wow. lie down. So what have you got for me in your, uh, in your philosophy? We have us? been advocating. So let me back up. Because most people only know desks and conference rooms when they think of office, yeah. we've been talking for a long time about different space types or different little mini environments, just like in a home. You know the difference between a gaming room and a living room and your bedroom. Like we need those distinct zones that are shared by the various population, you know, various folks within an office. Mm -hmm. And respite spaces, that's how we've historically re referred to them, are critically important. We have to remind some folks that they're not the sort of space you measure with badge swipes. Like they're not the sort of space that you want used all day long. But if you look at a good respite space, it should provide uh, a break from the demands of work in the workday that's restorative. Um, the the ones that are probably more common that you might find are nursing rooms, which should have a lock on the door and a fridge, a prayer room. But there should also be spaces for everyone. When I when I take a look, in fact, I was in our London uh, office uh, last Thursday and I went back to drop off some of my stuff and there were two respite spaces there that I didn't actually know were there. Mm -hmm. Great location because you don't feel exposed using them. It could be a, uh, a place for somebody with an anxiety disorder person of color who's dealing with code switching, microaggression, could be a woman in menopause dealing with thermal discomfort, brain fog, could be somebody's just having a crappy day. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, all of us should have the chance to step back 
And there's once again, a business case for this, because if you look as an example at the Surgeon General's report on mental health in the workplace from 2022, I think it was more than 80% of people said their workplace was a contributor to mental health problems and challenges, not a place mm -hmm. of, of uh, connection, safety, um, but, it, but they can be. You know, if I take a look as an example, even at the consulting firms years ago who used to have consultants spend their week with clients, they started creating spaces that their consultants didn't have to go to, but they thought, I bet people would find energy in feeling part of a community and that they're going to want to socialize and they're going to want to hang out. They're going to want to um, basically connect with each other. So they saw value in doing this way back when. If we view the workplace as that place to not just stress the heck out of somebody, then yes, we're going to provide places for respite. We're going to provide places for connection. We're going to think about holistic ergonomics. There's other things like biophilic design, bringing the outdoors in, um, but all of it has a payoff, doesn't it? Because our well-being affects every organizational outcome. It's not just healthcare costs. Yeah. Like my ability to do my work is contingent upon my well-being. And if organizations you know, take that mindset, then introducing something like a respite space is not a, or many of them is not a, a, a big leap. I hope not. I used to have on my homepage, design for well-being performance flows. Like they, nice. they go so hand in hand together. I should probably put that one back. Um, yeah. But I think there's a cultural block because there's in a hustle culture, grind, you know, grit. Doing is lauded. Resting is not. We haven't made the whole, the broad, 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 deep connection to the fact that you can invite glymphatic drainage of your brain and gave it a brainwash in three minutes. Oh, wow. three minutes, but that's three minutes of sleep, right? So do you go so far, I'm going to maybe push on this one. Do you go so far as to offer places for people to actually have a nap, fully mm. reclined? In our spaces, we do. Mm -hmm. It's made easier by the fact that we have an amazing portfolio of healthcare furniture, which includes uh, those recliners <laughs> yeah. that you can easily stretch out. And so it's very common in our offices to see a healthcare recliner, not in a clinical space, but in a respite space. I, I have slept in several of our spaces because I travel a lot, right? So yeah. it's not just it's not just exactly. stress, but if I'm traveling around the world and I've got an hour in between appointments, I mean, it's sometimes really, really helpful. Um, so yeah, we, we do. The notion of sleep pods and other kind of more explicit ways of supporting sleep in the office is still fairly rare, except for China and a few other places where it's, you know, normal to sleep at your desk over lunch. But um, yeah, but it, in the West, it's still considered something that you might want to tuck into a, a room that's off the beaten path. You need, to hide, you need to hide the fact that you need rest. That's where yeah. we are culturally still. No, go, 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 take another coffee, add some caffeine, like fuel yourself up and show up rather than recognizing that if you take breaks, my friend, Dr. Greg Wells is a physiologist and works at SickKids. And, you know, the science will show you take breaks, you're going to perform better than mm. pushing through. But I believe it. Somebody said to me, oh, I love what you're talking about. You're talking about design and leadership, biology and business. I'm like, yeah. Ooh. We have to we have to bring this together and then we can have the business case for a bed, you know. <laughs> you got it. Um, I'll, I'll just say, and this is not something that we've talked about a lot as a, a, a company, but with my own team, 
I use the term sustainable productivity all the time <gasps> just because I I am always worried about burnout. And yeah. the more distributed we are, so like I have a team that's, well, we're, we've got members in California, we've got some in Bangalore and India. The more distributed we are, you can have a lot of interaction digitally, but you don't always feel real deep social connection. And so I have seen it where people can get in the habit of really working themselves too far and then just not being able to recover. Um, this was not a member of my team, but we did a collaboration with a tech company in Seoul years ago who explained to me, and I don't know the Korean term for it, that you can get so burned out in a culture like Seoul that you can just basically disappear for days on end until you're okay enough to come back. And it's understood, um, but that's terrible. I mean, I, re I really would hate to think that we would ever get to the point. That's, that's responsive, like checking out. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, even the thought that that might be something that is normative would not be, not well, be like something in, we'd want to Japan, promote. And Karoshi, death by overwork, right? That's that there's a word for it. So Awful. There, yeah. yeah and so I'm, I'm, I want to put the brakes on all of that and infuse what we know into design and into the culture part of design. So it's designing culture as much as it is. You can have the greatest respite room, but if nobody feels okay, like it's cool to say, oh yeah, see this, see the sleep marks of the sheet on my face? <laughs> I was just, I was just taking 15 minutes of brain cleanse. Right? Yeah, we we see this a lot where organizations will invest millions in redoing uh their corporate real estate with very sincere intent. Mm -hmm. But when the message, hey, we've added um, some places of quiet relaxation, or we've added we've added a gym or whatever, come from the facilities team, it's appreciated. But when it comes from the CEO, it's transformative. Because at that point, it's, here's the evidence that we care about you and your well-being, and we want you to achieve, but we want you to do so in a sustainable way. Yeah. Um, and these are organizations that have already committed to it, but you really do need to hear from somebody in leadership that we care, yeah. we get it. We know you're stressed out and burned out. We don't want to contribute to that. Once again, I think just given the, the, the talent situation in many parts of the world, it's the smart move. You want to be able to retain, but you also want to be able to engage. Um, you know, you, you don't just want to hang on to people. You want to hang on to people that are thriving. Uh, yeah. And that takes a strategy. Yeah. I've talked about sustainable performance for several years now. That's what I'm trying to deliver. You can, you know, have somebody push and kick it out for a couple of days, but no, you want some, someone who knows how to self-regulate and design their work-life experience so they can keep showing up. I think yes. that's what you want, right? So you do. Let's, let's design the culture for that too. And the next horizon when it comes to physical place and work is home. Because those of us that have had a work from home experience for a while, hopefully have taken on the mantle of I'm the designer of my work experience in space. But we did a, a huge study on um, homes in general, not just work from home. Mm -hmm. And I'm still amazed that a lot of people are working around whatever conditions they had in 2020. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of organizations, while saying, hey, we're good with you working 40, 50% of your time from home, have not step back and said, well, shouldn't we make sure that they're healthy and productive at home? And by all means, if they're reducing their real estate portfolio a little bit to save some money, reinvest that, whether that's in training mm. or just just some um, good practices. You know, we have, we have one customer who 
will provide a stipend for an ergonomic chair or um, a head adjustable table, but they'll only do so after the employee takes a little bit of online ergonomics training just to make sure that they know what to do with these things. And I thought that's so smart. This is that that's what I recommended to the VP that I was working with in 1995 when I saw people walking around with carpal tunnel braces on. And I said, but we can we can this is preventable. And we have the stuff. It's just sitting in a brochure and nobody's read it. So how do we how do we where is the employer's beginning and end? I bought this great equipment. Figure it out. You know, there's there's yeah. a little bit more bringing people to best practice and then and following them home with it, too, is a really interesting conversation. Right. Because, yeah, I, I do a lot of work in Canada with Staples uh, up here and understand a little bit about what's been happening in the office furniture. Huge opportunity. But there's still a lot of people who don't see the value in investing in that setup for themselves. I know, like, I know. Oh and they're spending, they're spending as much time sitting there as they would on their mattress. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is an investment in yourself, um, but it's also one that can sometimes be daunting for people. I, I get that. But if they intend to have work from home be part of their ongoing work experience, then even if it's not a financial investment, just mm-hmm. adopting more sound practices. I have the mm-hmm. benefit of a high adjustable table, but if you don't, Grab that laptop, go to your kitchen counter for 15 minutes every couple. Or, Yeah, I'm a little concerned about the stability of an ironing board, but kitchen counter, I feel a little better about. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's worked in a hotel room for me. Has <laughs> <laughs> it? That's, what, yeah, I don't, that's yeah. one that I don't think I've tried. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you can put it to the, the height you, that you need. That's true. Sure, it is I'm forever in hotel rooms and the chair is too low or something. So I can bring, you know, the adjustability to your. Wow. I never thought about it. You just got to deal with that screech. Once somebody gets the ironing board screech taken care of, then then it might be a little better option. Yeah, yeah, right. You know what I'm talking uh, about? Yeah. Oh, I could I could talk to you for hours and I know we've only got a little <laughs> bit of time left. I want to get your perspective on hoteling mm-hmm. and this depersonalization of the office space so that somebody just can't even find themselves there anymore. What what should the minimum care be for someone with a winter coat and a purse and a gym bag and a how do you navigate all that stuff when you're saying well, you're going to have to reserve for a desk. And like, how are you navigating yeah. that? What are you What are you seeing? Oh, goodness, Claire. This is a 30-year journey. Um, shared desking, sometimes called hoteling, hot desking, not new, has mm-hmm. been done successfully in some cases and disastrously in others. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a really interesting shift that's going on right now that I'm concerned about. It used to be that hoteling was too many people, not enough desks will use hoteling. What's happening now is not enough people, too many desks. If you're not going to come in, then you lose your desk. And the reason why I'm concerned about it is we just completed some work with Dr. Nigel Oslin in the UK, looking at kind of the desirability of different facets of both home and the office. And Mm -hmm. one of the most fascinating takeaways from this particular study was that those with unassigned desks, and by the way, That's been common in the UK for a really long time, more so than other parts of the world. Those with unassigned desks rated almost every facet of the office lower than those with assigned desks. There's this concept known as place attachment from the world of environmental psychology. Basically, we have relationships with places. So the reason why people sit at the same chair at the dinner table or the same pew at church or their place of worship or whatever is we we get attached to these places and we begin to 
encode information as we you know learn and grow in these spaces and so I have when a you lane. I have a lane in my pool there's no lanes but I have a lane in my pool I tell you. You have, really you have a lane in your pool where you work out I'm attached to the spot that I choose to swim in to your point Actually, Actually, like if you look at how university students test better in rooms where they learn than in other rooms, you can you can link Makes performance sense. on some level to the familiarity of an environment. Yeah. Um, so if you're a competitive swimmer, I'm not entirely surprised. But all this to say, for an organization that's seeing lower occupancy to come along and say, well, I guess you're going to lose your desk may oh. seriously fuel the fire of people not coming in. But... There, there are ways of doing it fairly well. And the best success we've seen has been when there's a what's known as an owned neighborhood. So mm-hmm. let's just say there's a marketing department of 18 people. Mm-hmm. You might only put eight or 10 desks, but you're also putting a little project space or a little sofa or a little phone booth. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, well, this is the marketing teams. And if you add somebody to the team, it's not like you got to rearrange the space. They're all just sharing it. Ideally, if everybody's in, there's enough seats or work points that everybody can find some sort of place. But it offers that kind of scalability and flexibility of shared desking while still giving people something critical, which is if you're coming in and you want to know where your people are, you yeah. can find them. Like that's yeah. where, and that's where our stuff is. That's where our work is represented. And yes, if it's in a city where you're likely going to take a train or a bike, you're going to need an owned locker to keep those shoes, to keep those umbrellas, yoga mats. Um, yeah, there's there's good ways of doing it, but boy, when when it's done without a lot of consideration and change management, it can cause more problems than it solves. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking back to your comment about working from home and people needing to invest in that. When the when the pandemic started, I created a work from home better little half half day course. I'm thinking maybe I should be marketing that again because <laughs> I don't think the need has gone away. People no, actually haven't haven't solved it necessarily. So um, thank you for that tip. I think I'm recognizing the time and I'm going to end with a question. I'm I'm curious about this. Right now I'm embarking on a program for leaders and their teams to co-create their future of work together, Brilliant. which is looking at the tasks, the things they need to accomplish, and then from looking at the task, what's collaborative, and then coming to compromise together. So leadership stepping away from control, employees are stepping towards compromise, and they're saying, we want to get this done. How and when are we going to get together? And this is... Perfect. Oh. Uh, how, how and when are we going to get together? And what sort of physical environments do you need to be successful? Yeah. And as you pointed out earlier uh, on the topics of neurodivergence, sensory uh, needs, uh, and other things, it can vary. It can even vary based on your personal life. I mean, if you can't stand your spouse, that's going to affect the sort of space you need. Or if you have heightened sensory issues within the office that are distracting and causing problems. So yes to how and when should we be together? And also, what kind of spaces do you need to be successful? And the results will probably surprise most team leaders. And I do uh, just want to affirm, this is really well done at a team level. Very difficult for any individual to change their work process without coordinating with others, and almost impossible for an enterprise to do it universally. So the team is the nucleus. And by the way, the team is also probably the nucleus for future workplace designs as well. 
I totally agree. So I've put together something called the work style profile, which asks individuals to identify the, the conditions that invite their best performance. But it doesn't say, where do you want to work? Because that's next. Yes. It's, what do you that's prefer? Right. Quiet space, what ergonomics? There's a whole big tick list. And, and then from there, you design with the team. Well, you know what? I need a quiet space. That could be your home. That could be the office. And it's going to totally depend on what your situation's going on. Yes. The parallel I'd give you, if this analogy helps, is that when uh, a person shops for a new home, mm-hmm. they're going to look at their needs and that of their family, how, whatever, however they think of their family, in terms of like, what are the range of activities that mm-hmm. are critical? And then do these spaces support it? And it's the same sort of kind of lens. What are the range of activities we might have in the course of a year? not just this week. And then do we have the choice of spaces to to solve this? And it won't be perfect, but if the majority of them are covered, then it's amazing how teams can become more agile. And that's in every business's best interest, isn't it? Or every organization's best interest to have teams that take more accountability and have more autonomy to change how they work because there's all this changing in the world. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah, the best way to get there is to, to, Stop, I'm, I'm saying solve the stalemate and bring people now to, to a healthy um, attitude and compassionately look at each other. I think one of the big challenges I'm seeing is that there's very little compassion for either side. And leaders need a whole lot of compassion too because they're shouldering a lot. Oh, and they yes. also no. have challenges managing this abstract nature of the team now. And that that can lead to Perhaps trust is part of it and control is part of it, but I think also this abstract difficulty in managing a disper- dispersed workforce if they haven't been used to it is also something at play in in here. Yeah, uh, we could use some empathy. I think so, like a big dose, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Ryan, it's been an absolute thrill. I've been able to ask you some of my burning questions that I've been really curious about. So thank you so much for joining me. Listeners, definitely check out Miller Knoll and their incredible offering. Follow Ryan Anderson. You can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, And we'll put all the, the links in the show notes. And definitely, if you listen to this episode, be sure to let us know. Reach out and let us know what resonated with you in this conversation. There was so much good stuff here. And uh Really, I think the invitation to listeners is to really think about what's going to invite your best performance and talk about your organizations with this bigger open thinking about it and see if you can't get towards a better design. Thank you, Claire. It's been a joy. You can find all of the Happy Space Podcast episodes over at happyspacepod.com. I love learning what resonates with you, so please leave a comment about this episode over social media, or even better, post a review wherever you tune in. And if you have an idea for a topic to explore or an inclusive action to celebrate, I would love to know more about it. It might even appear in an upcoming episode or an issue of the Happy Space newsletter. Please help me spread the word about people doing great things. After all, doesn't everyone deserve a happy space? Thank you.